Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I sure am glad to be on the air with you guys. And I know when I was on the air last, um, I didn't know if I would uh, be able to get back on the air with you guys uh, just before uh, Christmas Day. And what do you know, I do have that opportunity, so I am going to uh, seize on it and make the most of it. You know, um, for those of you who are um, listening and who just so happen to be Pittsburgh Steeler fans, it was quite um, shocking news uh, just the other day to learn that uh, Steelers running back great Franco Harris passed away. Now, I I know he was uh, in his early 70s, uh, 72 years old, and on one hand that does seem like a long life, but at the same time, uh, there are no guarantees in life. Uh, We can't take life for granted at all. I mean, we do have to live as though... each day is could be our last. Uh, but Franco Harris uh, certainly did accomplish a lot, not only as a football player, but uh, also uh, he also had a remarkable career outside of uh, football in terms of uh, business and uh, charity-related uh, work. Now, one thing that Franco Harris, um, to many, uh, can be best remembered for uh, 50 years ago on this date, uh, December 23rd, 1972, I wasn't even born. <laughs> Matter of fact, folks, I wasn't born until uh, May of 1979. So I was uh, born uh, right around the time that the Steelers, not long after the Steelers had won their third uh, Super Bowl. And, of course, they were the team of the 70s. Um, you know, had it not been for Chuck Knoll, I'm not sure if the Steel- there would have even been a Steelers dynasty. I'm not sure if the Steelers would have uh, become the football team that they are still to this day. Um, even after all these years later, but um, but the Steelers really, in a sense, had been uh, what were they were called the um, lovable losers. And in 1972, they were in their uh, 40th year as a franchise. They had only been to one postseason game in their history and had lost that one. And it's not so much that the Steelers won that game 50 years ago, but how it happened to this day. Is really a miracle, and I and after watching the video, um, many of times since um, Franco's passing, I really do understand just how um, how truly a miracle it was, and why it is considered the immaculate reception. I don't know if uh, something like that would even have been allowed to happen now, uh, with all the rules and um, policies in place for instant replay, but. Uh, to me, that's a very unique piece of history um, from a sports uh, perspective, and knowing that um, you know Franco Harris didn't stop; he kept on running, and and had he stopped, the ball would have touched the ground, the game would have been over, and um, who knows what the future may have held. But the bottom line is that uh, because of Franco Harris's actions, he helped get a dynasty going, and. And not only just a dynasty, but he made, he, along with the rest of the Steelers, from that day forward, became winners. So um, so for those of you who are listening um, in for some time and who are ardent Pittsburgh Steelers fans, um, it is, um, it, it really is, um, it's sad to know that uh, Franco has uh, passed on, but he has uh, left a wonderful legacy, though, one that should uh not be forgotten, and um, in a little while tonight, on 9 o'clock on the NFL channel, there will be um, a documentary on Franco Harris, um, a football life, so uh, 
I will definitely be checking it out. And uh, for those of you who love the Steelers, make sure to check it out as well. So anyways, uh, I do believe it is important to uh, focus on uh, what we've been discussing all along in this uh, book topic series, and that is uh, Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan. Now, in this uh, next uh, podcast uh, segment, we're going to learn how um, the colonists um, go about um, reinventing themselves. Well, we already know that uh, some of the colonies have uh, gone about um, partaking in uh, privateering measures, but we're going to, you know, we need to learn um, how they uh, go, I should say, that how about how they go beyond 101 uh, reinvention. We also are going to learn, um, we're going to learn as much as there is possible about a privateersman's life. So in other words, we got to know there's more to being a privateersman than just uh, capturing prizes. So I think we're going to be in for a very, very uh, good study for this uh, podcast segment episode to uh, Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan. So uh, let's be prepared to get the show on the road. And here we go with our uh, first leadoff question. Considering what uh, Parliament had implemented between 1774 to 1775, of course in 1774 we had the uh, Boston Port Act, which was part of the uh, intolerable or a.k.a. coercive acts, depending on where you're living, that is, whether you're living in colonial America or in uh, England, based upon how you interpret the uh, legislation, to uh, the Prohibitory Act of 1775, which uh, you know resulted in bringing American maritime commerce to a standstill, were ship owners willing to do anything outside the norm to stay afloat? Well, if I was a ship owner... And especially in Massachusetts, knowing that the Port of Boston's closed, it's now been relocated to Salem, which isn't far. But think about how many people in Boston have lost their jobs, whose livelihoods are dependent upon uh, working in the port. And it's not just one profession, multiple professions. But if I'm a ship owner, uh, yes, I will be um, willing to do just about anything, not only to reinvent perhaps my profession, but to keep my livelihood afloat. Uh, because if I don't, then I pretty much risk uh, losing my business, um, not just temporarily, but uh, long-term and uh, unfortunately for good if I don't do anything to uh, change my ways. So ship owners uh, viewed the practice of privateering as an essential mean for reinventing their businesses. Given so many below those employees working for the uh, ship owners, say the sailors and the fishermen, they are already out of work. So the ship owners could turn to many below whom were willing to go the extra mile where the inevitable could be avoided. And what is that? Being, um, being into what's called uh, bankruptcy. You know, back then we didn't have such things as Chapter 7 or Chapter 11 uh, bankruptcy um, protocol uh, guidelines, but whenever you hear of someone or a person or a business having to file for bankruptcy, that's where the, the business or the individual themselves are unable to repay not just one outstanding debt, pardon me, a little tongue twister, 
where a business or a person is unable to repay not just one outstanding debt, but multiple outstanding debts. So the last thing a ship owner wants to run the risk of is being forced into bankruptcy where he can no longer operate his business. In a sense, not just his business, but his livelihood. Merchants also got motivated by anger. How so? Well, Parliament's legislative injustices, you know, especially with the Port Act and the... Um, if you didn't live in Boston, yes, you could still feel impacted by the Port Act, knowing that, okay, if Parliament now has closed the Port of Boston, if you live in Charleston, South Carolina, and that's the, the busiest port to the southern colonies, then you know that if Parliament has passed legislation closing the Port of Boston, we could be next, anybody else could be vulnerable. So none of us whose ports have been closed at this time can sit back and take, take anything lightly. So, yes, merchants are motivated by anger through Parliament's legislative injustices, not only with the uh, Boston Port Act, but the Prohibitory Act, which pretty much brought all of um, American uh, commerce to a standstill where England would no longer trade with the colonies and the colonies were forbidden to trade with England's um, other colonies whom remained uh, loyal to the crown. Now, um, Let's take a, a look into a fellow uh, congressional delegate from Pennsylvania, and for some of you who've been with me from other uh, podcast uh, book topic uh, series discussions, how about a fellow named Robert Morris? I'm sure those of you who live in Pennsylvania are very, very familiar with Mr. Robert Morris. And if you don't, and just because you don't live in Pennsylvania, it doesn't mean that you. Uh, might not already know anything about the guy. I know a fair number of things about him, uh, but that's not a bad thing either. Uh, Robert Morris uh, was very inspired by uh, the privateer movement well before 1776 ended, and his first investment with privateering saw his vessel capture 13 prizes. Now, I'll tell you, he really struck... He really struck it gold on the first uh, go-around. And because he had so much success, folks, on his first uh, investment, he went on to organize multiple privateering ventures. He even served on a secret committee of trade, which oversaw obtainments to military supplies. So this man has a lot of connections, folks. Uh, one of his other big... Um, interests or uh, specialties is in finance. So when you have people like this, especially with Robert Morris, it definitely uh, pays big time because, remember, any kind of hard money that Congress can get, that is like in the form of silver or gold, it's going to have far more value than the paper money. But then again, any kind of um, provisions that... Um, that are captured by means of a privateering mission are also welcomed by Congress because, think about this, you know, funding this war, it's a joint effort, not so much by the Congress, but also by the states. And then eventually, you know, there will be some other heavy hitters that we will um, be learning about somewhere down the road. Now, uh, Salem, Massachusetts, of course, we have... Uh, discussed about Salem, Massachusetts earlier with a, a particular, um, with a couple of particular uh, merchants, but uh, 
Of course, whenever I think of Salem, Massachusetts, the first thing that always comes to my mind is the uh, infamous uh, witchcraft trials of 1692. But I think it's fair to say that we should uh, come to the realization that there is more to Salem than just those infamous uh, witchcraft trials. Salem, uh, even after the port of Boston was closed, Salem uh, continued to remain a prosperous port. And even before the port of Boston was closed, uh, Salem was still doing well as a port. So nonetheless, Salem is a prosperous uh, seaport town uh, comprised in the 1770s of nearly 5,000 people. And it's home to Elias Haskett Derby, who we, um, I remember uh, talking about him from a previous uh, podcast, but what also makes um, Elias uh, Haskett uh, Derby all the more unique was that he owned and partially owned 39 out of 158 privateers launched by uh, Salem during the Revolutionary War. That's pretty, you know, it's one thing to to own one or two privateers, but if someone owns 39 out of 158 privateers launched by the um, seaport town of Salem throughout the Revolutionary War, that tells me right there that that um, merchant man is very well off. Lots of connections, and when you have lots of connections, that also means you have uh, lots of money as well. So I uh, did the math on this, and it turns out that uh, 39 out of a into 158, that when you get the final answer comes out to 25 percent. So that means that um, Elias Haskett Derby owned a quarter of all vessels uh, launched in Salem. Blair McLennican, he was a prominent figure of privateering in Philadelphia. He owned or held a stake in up to 55 vessels. Wow, if you can have a stake in that many vessels, I tell you, you've got uh, some big uh, wallets. And what I mean by big wallets is lots of money because not everybody can afford to invest in a vessel. If you, as I've talked mentioned before about the middling families whose income usually is about 12 pounds a year, I don't believe the average middling family could afford to um, own a vessel, or a privateer, let's put it that way. After all, if if a middling family wants to purchase a musket, that's going to cost them about six pounds. That might be their biggest investment for the year. So, it's one thing to have money, but at the same time, let's also be reminded that not everybody has the money to invest in um not just a vessel, but in multiple vessels. So for uh, Blair McLennican, yes, he uh, owns or holds a stake in up to 55 vessels. McLennican also served in the Continental Army and saw action at the battles of Trenton and Princeton, which pretty much uh, restored morale to the Continental Army and uh, saved the um, overall cause, uh, greater cause for, um, for independence because uh, going into Trenton, we were hanging by a thread, and hard to believe, um, in two days from now, um, Christmas night, just keep in mind, folks, Christmas night, 1776, and here we are in the year 2022, 246 years ago, George Washington and his ragtag Continental Army crossed the Delo- icy Delaware River 
It took him about nine hours to do all this, folks. But it, the, the mission was very simple, victory or death. If it's death, that, that means the end of the revolutionary, it's the end of the revolutionary war. There's no more opportunity to gain um, our true independence from England. And the um, Declaration of Independence will pretty much die with it as well. So it wasn't so much that we beat the British at Trenton and Princeton. It gave the Declaration of Independence far more uh, significant meaning. It's one thing to have a document declaring your separation from England, but the document itself, being the Declaration of Independence, doesn't have any meaning if you are not able to defeat the mightiest army, not just in one battle, but in a time of crisis when you're trying to restore morale to the greater cause. Now, for those young men whom joined a privateer, what did it represent? Well, it represented some uh, opportunities, to say the least. It, um, opportunities for adventure, including fortune, but also escaping intense manual laboring. Once young men uh, came aboard, they had to sign a ship's articles. Interesting. It, to me, that sounds like uh, having to sign a contract. You know, sign some agreements on um, really in a sense of, you know, it's like when you go to the doctor's office, you have to sign forms, uh, consent forms. Uh, you have to sign forms uh, updating your um, personal information into uh, the files. So these articles, in a sense, are like agreements, uh, con contract agreements between owners and employees. So, yes, once the young men came aboard, they did have to sign um, a ship's articles, agreements between the captain and the crew, which laid out the owner's and the captain's duties, the duties of crewmen aboard ship, including rewards and punishments for specific behaviors to profit distribution. So, there's all kinds of uh, guidelines and protocols that do need to be abided to. It's not just, oh, I've, I'm going to get on board this uh, ship and um, we're just going to have a grand old fun time. I don't have to worry about any kind of uh, liabilities. No, that's not the way it works. So after all, there are protocols and guidelines uh, for what is appropriate and not appropriate to tolerate and uh, how and what is expected of you, just like... Um, in today's time when going into a job. Now, one um, particular privateer vessel that I thought was um, worth uh, sharing with regards to its um, articles, the vessel was known as the Hibernia, or the Hibernia, H-I-B-E-R-N-I-A. So we'll call it the Hibernia. The privateer vessel Hibernia sailed from New London, Connecticut on October the 10th of 1780, she had 12 articles. Now, we're not going to go through all 12 articles. <laughs> uh, that would take an eternity, probably. But um, the first article held that the owners, it held uh, something of the following. Article 1 held owners agreeing to fit out Hibernia per their own expenses. So, in other words, they had to uh, pay out of their own pockets to uh, get this uh, ship uh, built along with providing arms and food that would last for nearly two months at sea. And the owners got half of all prizes per cruise. So, okay, folks, so think about this. We don't have any grocery stores. 
and provisions are essential. Arms, okay, you know, think about this. You need, you know, cannons. You need, you know, the uh, crewmen aboard the uh, vessels, they need to be able to defend themselves against an enemy raid along the waters. Food. Think about this. For two months now, folks, we don't have any refrigerators on these vessels. And we're going to talk some more here in a little bit about um, about food itself because, uh, you know, it's so easy to take food for granted. And we have to be reminded of the fact that, um, you know, in 18th century times and before then, you know, we didn't have refrigerators. Although, you know, some people did have uh, smokehouses but not everybody had a smokehouse as a means of uh, preserving their meats uh, for long-term uh, purposes. The average middling family would have eaten their food. Uh, they would have eaten all of their food that was um, for their uh, main meal of the day. And, of course, they would have had a, a supper in the evening, but the supper would have been something like a little snack. So very few people would have been able to have had... Um, a smokehouse, uh, even a salt, uh, even a means for salting your foods. So we have to be reminded of the fact that when it comes to um, attaining um, certain commodities or attaining um, certain um, features, not some people have them and other people don't. So we just need to keep in mind that okay, if we're going to be out at sea for two months. We've got to take. We've got to plan ahead of time. Logistics, okay. We've got to make sure that that the crew has enough arms to defend themselves, and they need to have enough food with them that will last for two months. That won't run the risk of spoiling. Now, what was the average age per each man serving in the Continental Army? Army, including serving aboard privateer vessels. Well, the answer would be uh, anywhere from the low to mid-20s. We, we do have to keep in mind, folks, that, you know, when you reached the age of 10, you were considered an adult in the 18th century because uh, not, not every child made it up to the age of 10. And usually by the time you're at the age of 10, you are starting to learn um, to do things that, that you would probably be doing more of right before or around age 18, but um, it is fair to say that, um, and historians know this, that, that there were plenty of young men uh, between the ages of 10 and 15 who were uh, apprenticed to, um, to um, tradespeople who uh, worked in the maritime industry, whether it was uh, caulking, uh, wood making, you know, that is wood for building ships, um, they were also um, doing other um, uh, practices uh, that would have been essential. So, so just keep in mind that um, even if they weren't um, being apprenticed, if they still had um, some form of connection with the water, um, that connection itself is certainly not a bad thing. But nonetheless, low to mid-20s was about the average age per each man serving in the Continental Army. Now, the average age for professional seamen during the Revolutionary War was around 25. The majority of the privateers did have maritime backgrounds, something that on, only which one out of ten colonists could claim. One out of ten, folks, that means only 10%. A small number, but yet at the same time, it's an elite number, too. 
that means 90%, if you think about it, folks, 90% um, are still on farms. So one out of 10, if, if one out of 10 uh, people, being that of a man, um, has um, maritime background, that means that not, the other nine out of the 10 not only do not have the maritime background, but they, uh, but, but their lives have been primarily comprised of being on a farm. Now, um, privateers, or rather privateer crews, often consisted of men and boys who knew one another. You know, I think it is fair to say that when you grow up in a community like Salem, Boston, Marblehead, um, Gloucester, and I say Gloucester, Massachusetts, because that's where um, the, um, the the famous movie The Perfect Storm, uh, the Andrea Gale um, uh, entered and left out of uh, Gloucester. And, of course, she sadly lost her life um, with the six men aboard um, her aboard the vessel in uh, October of 1991. Hard to believe that was uh, 31 years ago. Uh, but uh, Gloucester, I know, um, if I'm not mistaken, after having watched The Perfect Storm, I hadn't, hadn't watched it in some time, but at the very end of the movie, they have been able to trace records dating back to the final decade of the 17th century of men who have lost their lives at sea from Gloucester. And I want to say it could be anywhere from ten to 12,000 men who have lost their lives. You know, it's one thing to go out at sea, but there's no guarantee that you'll always come home alive. And um, I, I take my hats off to those who are willing to risk their lives in terms of being a commercial fisherman. It's not for everybody. So um, as for uh, what I just said earlier about how um, privateer crews often consisted of men and boys who knew one another, Let's take Marblehead, Massachusetts, for example, being another well-to-do fishing town. And we learned from an earlier podcast with uh, regards to Elbridge Jerry and his family being from Marblehead. Well, uh, Marblehead uh, saw customs or rather practices where friends, including multiple members of extended families, uh, sign up for the same privateer ship. Let's take an example of the privateer called the Thorn. It sailed out from Newburyport, Massachusetts, early 1781. Captain Samuel Tucker and nearly everyone on board of the 124-member crew came from Marblehead. And it turns out that 33 out of the 124 crew were related. I did the math, and that means 27%, folks, 27% uh, of the 124-member crew aboard um, the Thorn were uh, were related so i could see how um people are you know very um connected to the water and people if you're related you will you know almost do anything to help out another uh family member not only through the best of times but through the try most trying of times but even in times when it comes to uh people banding together when the going gets tough most privateersmen had even served on Continental Navy vessels. The transitions happened uh, due to seeking more money, including limitations on the overall number of naval ships available for service. And as I've said before, and I'll say it again, folks, 
the Continental Navy never made it to over 100 vessels. So if there was a shortage of Continental Navy vessels, it had nothing to do with um, our government being ignorant. It's just that we can only probably build but so many Continental Navy vessels at one time. And as we'll be learning here in a little bit, Continental Navy vessels, I can tell you this much just at the moment, they didn't always serve the same functions as privateers did. So if a privateersman having served aboard a Continental Navy vessel was um, doing a different task, but um, the service wasn't needed for a future endeavor down the road, then yes, he's going to be inclined to go on a privateer uh, mission or two to not only make a little bit more extra money, but to uh, partake in a different task that is uh, required to ensure that um, America's waters are safe. So, yes, privateersmen, um, it is fair to say that they are not only just partaking uh, aboard a privateer vessel, but they are also having continental naval experience. They are serving a dual-role purpose. So, yes, so basically we know that um, privateers also got men from the Army as well, expanding the revolutionary cause. So I think it's fair to say that... Um, there's a thing called flexibility here where, you know, it's, you could say that, oh, I fight for the Continental Army, but, but you probably shouldn't put all your eggs into uh, one basket. It is fair to say that, um, that people are needed to be called upon to do different things in uh, the most unique of circumstances. We do know that um, 60 men, from what I learned, rather, I should say, 60 men whom commanded privateers also commanded or served as officers on continental naval ships during the war. Many ended up with high fame after war's end, establishing naval careers thanks in part to privateering experiences. Take a fellow by the name of Silas Talbot. He would become the future commander of USS Constitution, and the USS Constitution's hull was um, a copper hull uh, designed by Miss, none other than Mr. Paul Revere. Believe it or not, folks, Paul Revere did more than just say the British were, are coming. <laughs> but yes, uh, we have Silas Talbot, who is a future commander of the USS Constitution that would gain the nickname Old Ironsides. Thomas Truxton, he was one of the original six commanders selected by George Washington to the first official United States Navy that was established five years after Washington became president in 1794. Now we're going to talk a little bit about money here. And I know that, you know, yes, it is important to make money to earn a living. It is important to make money as a means to um, be able to um, buy essential uh, things like groceries, clothes, it's also important to make money to be able to uh, save up for the unexpected, as well as to be able to take a fun trip. But let me ask you all this question. Was money itself a major component for owners of privateers? The answer is yes. Money always played a key role, given the sole, or rather I should say primary task for ship owners was to secure prizes where their 50% for each haul got met consistently. So this is a livelihood here, folks. Remember, um, ship owners, 
are having to reinvent themselves. You know, the Port of Boston's closed. The Restraining Act has done, or the Prohibitory Act has done um, a, a number, and they all know that there's no going back. So for each successful in, endeavor or adventure that has um, occurred on a privateering vessel or a privateer vessel, and in some instances uh, there are ship owners who own more than 10 vessels. We already know that um, his, what's his face, uh, Silas Haskett Derby and um, Blair McClanahan are some big time um, privateer vessel owners. So they know that per each um, mission that uh, results in a successful uh, outcome, that 50% is going to go a long way. If a naval ship captured a British warship, the officers and the crew went about splitting up the 100 went about splitting up 100% prize money privateer ship capturing a british warship the privateersmen received only 50% of the prize money after the owner's cut capturing a merchantman vessel was more likely to happen versus the opposite in seizing a british warship so you know, yes, it's one thing to capture a British warship if you're um, a private aboard a privateer ship. I think it's fair to say that something like that's going to happen. There's a one in ten likelihood that it's going to happen. If you're on a naval ship and you capture a British warship, I think it'd be fair to say that it could be a 50% chance. So in other words, it may not always be a slam dunk likelihood but there to me it would be at least 50 percent or more that you could get a, a british uh, warship naval ships this is where i think the uh, the most unique differences um, lie between naval ships and uh, the privateer ships folks because i and i say this because we've often been led to believe that naval ships did the same thing as uh, the privateers have done but what i've come to learn is that that's not the case Naval ships saw more of a public service role as they spent more time engaging and ferrying diplomats from point A to point B to sending dispatches, that is, letters, across the Atlantic Ocean to protecting American ports from British raids, attacks. Naval ships basically could not move as freely as privateers given their primary purpose did not revolve around capturing enemy prizes. So that, to me, folks, is a big deal right there. But then again, before I read this book, I was always under the assumption that naval ships were capturing enemy prizes. They weren't. If naval ships did bring in prizes, and there were times when naval ships did, folks, but if they did bring in prizes which at times did happen, the prizes attained went to benefit the Navy itself and to an extent the Army. So for the Navy, it's from within. Uh, for the privateers, yes, it could still benefit um, perhaps the Navy and the Army, but, but it's all going to come down to um, the ship's owner, the captain and the crew as to how those proceeds are going to be divvied out in terms of the uh, rewards, rather, I should say. Did some or many feel as if those whom partook in privateering got motivated by greed? 
gosh, I think that, that to me sounds like a very odd question to be asking, especially in a time of crisis. Well, believe it or not, there were some, uh, or perhaps a select uh, group of people, who did view privateering as a means of personal gain. That is, an I-me-myself um, motive. Where the greater sacrifice centered only on what was taking place at the present moment, and that being the capture of an enemy vessel whose prizes catered not only to the captain and his crew, but also to that of Congress. And we have to remember, too, folks, Congress is a small body. It, there, there's no such thing as 435 representatives in, like we know of today in the modern-day House of Representatives. But at the same time, it could be fair to say that a majority of those whom come to see privateering as a means of uh, personal gain, I, me, myself, they are coming to see this as private interests prevailing over the greater, greater public cause of liberty. You know, people back then were certainly entitled to their own opinions, and I could see how some people would have felt this way. To me, it's a tough call because, yes, there. it is fair to say that, how do I say it? I'm not trying to sound political. I'm not trying to make this into a political um, discussion for this part of our podcast topic. But it could be fair to say that even during the time of the American Revolutionary War that there were uh, delegates in Congress who uh, were profiting from the war. But we also have to keep in mind that there were a handful of delegates who had vast connections, not just in America, but overseas, and perhaps connections to one of Britain's rivals. And if they have those kinds of connections, they better not squander them. So we, we do need to keep in mind that we did have uh, delegates to Congress who had um, money and without their um, connections, it would be fair to say that financing the war would not have been able to have happened. Mariners uh, joining Washington's Navy, including those whom signed up for state navies, and including the Continental Navy, were to some degree or extent encouraged by money. Each naval service provided officers and crew with a cut of the profits, added on to their standard salaries. Hey, incentives are not a bad thing, folks, because that, you know, in times of crisis when you're needing to lure uh, people in to, uh, fill, um, to fill in some missing numbers, I mean, you've got to find a way to keep uh, people uh, committed to this uh, greater cause for independence. So uh, without offering a cut of the profits, very few men would have enlisted. And if we think it's just the Americans who are doing this, folks, guess again. The British Royal Navy has been uh, using prize money. They were probably doing this even before um, America declared um, its separation um, from the mother country. So the British Royal Navy is using prize money on top of regular pay to lure recruits given life at sea was challenging. And if anybody doesn't think life at sea is challenging, then I, I don't know what to say about that. But although, here, here's our next question here. Although the men sailing aboard privateers were driven by money, including the rewards provided per the prizes captured, what other factor 
might have been a driving force. Think about this for a second. What other factor could have been a driving force? Providing not only for the welfare of the privateer himself, but also for families as a whole should a privateer, privateersman be of married status. Okay, so, you know, it's one thing to be um, a privateersman, folks. And yes, you do, you know, you need to think about your uh, well-being in terms of supporting yourself. But if you have a spouse and you have five or six kids at home, whatever uh, cut you earn, that money should be going towards um, towards your family and uh, what other whatever other essentials um, need to be uh, taken care of. So privateering to me really is seen as an extra source of income for those whom are uh, making the ultimate sacrifice. Now, uh, what were the uh, most common um, types of privateers? Sloops, number one are uh, the sloops. They are the small square rigged uh, sailing uh, warship with two or three masts, masts being the upright uh, post uh, carrying the sails. Then you have uh, schooners, which are a sailing ship with two or more masts. The brigs being a two-masted square rigged ship used for naval and mercantile purposes. And then how about a galley or galleys, which are low flat, which are a low flat ship with one or more sails, primarily used for warfare and trade. Of course, there were some other ships, um, and or that would have fallen under a privateer uh, category. But the ones that came to my mind were the sloops, the schooners, uh, the brigs, and the uh, galleys. One um, ship I thought here was a very um, interesting one. It was known as the Grand Turk. It was a 300-ton ship equipped with 28 cannons. It was launched in May of 1781, and by war's end, the Grand Turk captured 16 top-level prizes. And believe it or not, folks, who owns the Grand Turk? It's none other than Mr. Elias Haskett Derby of Salem, Massachusetts, who owned who either owned or partially owned 39 out of 158 um, vessels uh, launched in Salem, and one of those 39 just so happened to be the Grand Turk. It could be fair to say that maybe, I don't know this, but I'm going to take a wild guess, maybe the Grand Turk was the granddaddy of all of, of his, the vessels that uh, Mr. Derby owned or partially owned. So, privateers... To have this kind of success in capturing 16 top-level prizes for the Grand Turk, wouldn't it be fair to say that privateers need to rely on being swift? Absolutely. But in order to rely upon being swift, two things need to uh, come out of this. You need to be able to chase and outrun all enemy vessels. It's one thing to have cannons, but even cannons alone can't or rather, I should say, could not protect privateers from surprise enemy raids. What could happen, uh, rather, I should say, how could a um, captain modify a situation? How could the captain and the crew modify a situation if they knew they were coming into hostile waters, knowing that a surprise attack could occur at any moment? or within a day's time, but how could they modify the situation if there were really, in a sense, were not enough cannons? Well, if short on cannons, 
privateersmen and their officers could and often did resort to using what were called Quaker guns. Yeah, I never heard of Quaker guns, folks, until I read this book. But Quaker guns are, are uh, in a sense, wooden dummies posing as the real thing to where they outsmarted opposition forces. Privateers had larger crews than fishing vessels, would often um, depart on journeys with over 50 or 100 men. Large crews were required to fight and man prizes seized. The more prizes secured, the smaller the crew became. But if there was a downside, that also meant the greater the number of prisoners on board. Can't take anything for granted, and you certainly can't assume anything. You have to be on your A-game all the time when on the water. Uh, what was life aboard a privateer like? What do you all think? What was life aboard a privateer truly like? Well, for, for a majority of the time, it was dull but yet repetitive, with daily tasks performed regularly. Crewmen were constantly scanning the distances for vessels, whereas other crew personnel prepared the ship for an engagement by practicing the operations of battle stations to checking all weapons and equipment were properly functioning. Another example of being on your A-game all the time. You can't just sit back and say, well, you know, I checked this thing yesterday, so... I think it should be fine for the rest of the week. Good luck. And you get attacked by the enemy, then you know that you really are up a creek. I mean, yeah, it's one thing to be attacked, but if you didn't um, do your daily uh, check operations, just think now. You really are even in a, um, in a deeper bind. Well, you know, we talked about food earlier and how we shouldn't be taking food for uh, granted. Well... I will have to say this, food itself on board a privateer wasn't always the best, and, and it really, in a sense, was not always, um, it wasn't always grand. In other words, it wasn't always top of the line either. And of course, when I think of food at sea, I often think of, you know, salted pork, salted beef, uh, even chip beef, believe it or not. I even think of the uh, hardtack, the... Um, the hard biscuit, and the only way you could really soften it was perhaps putting it in some uh, stew uh, to be able to chew it better. But we do have to keep in mind that when you're on a, a vessel, you weren't eating three meals a day. You might have been lucky if you got two, but most uh, crewmen uh, along the water were probably eating uh, one um, big meal a day, and the main purpose for the food itself was to supply enough calories for all men aboard to do their jobs and basically to work those calories as swiftly as possible. So, you know, in today's modern time, you know, they say on boxes like, you know, 2,000 calorie diet or, or 2,000 calories a day, I think it's fair to say that in, in centuries past, you know, People, we, we have to keep in mind that, you know, people ate stuff a lot of times based upon the seasons. So their calories were changing per a seasonal basis. If you're out on the water, yes, you might be eating foods that are high in calories, but you are going to be doing enough tasks to work it off to where you only may need to eat one big meal a day. 
What I did find interesting was uh, looking over the accounts of a particular privateer known as the Porus, spelled P-O-R-U-S, Porus. It sailed from uh, Salem, Massachusetts in 1781. The bill of fare, that is what you would be eating on certain days. We have to keep in mind, folks, that uh, you just didn't bring what you wanted. You know, you, you couldn't say, oh, I want this or I don't like that. No. Let's uh, look at a few interesting uh, examples of, of the bill of fare from the privateer Porus. On Monday, it was pork and peas. Friday, pork and beans. Saturday, salted fish. There were some occasional treats on Sundays, like lobscous. What is lobscous? It's a mixture of chopped meat, vegetables, and biscuits boiled with grease and spices. It's a unique delicacy. I think that would have been worth trying. However, um, there is a downside, and I know we talked about it earlier, but I'll just mention it again. The longer the cruise meant greater likelihood of food provisions spoiling sooner versus later. What were the main targets for which privateers regularly sought out? Uh, the merchantmen and military supply ships. Merchantmen and supply ships often seen as formidable given their appearances were meant to inspire fear towards an opposing force deemed to be inferior. Should a vessel be of manageable size, the next step was to identify the ship's status, that is, being the country it came from, in this case, you know, the country origin being Britain, or a neutral ship su supplying um, England. Most ships carried uh, multiple flags from many nations, whose intent was to thwart off would-be enemies. Here's a little phrase. The ruse de guerre, flying of false flags, which American privateers used where they raised British colors to trap ships further inward, and once in firing range, they would bring down the Union Jack, being the United Kingdom national flag, and replace it with an American flag, which was a mandatory requirement before engaging the enemy. International law custom helped reveal vessels' real identity. We're, we're getting not far to the end, folks. When privateersmen returned home from a successful cruise, what were they most likely to embark upon? Like sailors, privateersmen often spent their earnings recklessly. Hate to say that, but it happened. Recklessly through drinking, not just drinking, but excessive drinking, to raucous entertainment. Raucous entertainment that, to me, would have been considered a little risque for its time. I, I don't know how it would... Uh, be interpreted by today's standards, but, you know, each generation's different. Now, what I do have to keep in mind is that um, taverns along the coast, you know, there are taverns inland and then there are taverns out along the uh, waters, of most notably of uh, seaport towns. So Boston, Massachusetts, for example, would be home to many uh, seaport taverns. So would Providence, Rhode Island. I mean, the list could go on and on. But yes, taverns were found throughout all 13 colonies, and each colony per legislature prior to Revolutionary War breaking out regulated um, how much a tavern owner could be held liable 
per credit allotment. So in other words, um, just because you went into a tavern, you it didn't mean that you could uh, do whatever it is you wanted to do. You did have to abide by um, by not only just the rules of the tavern, but if you did not pay the tavern keeper prior to leaving, then there were uh, consequences. So some tavern keepers had a limit of anywhere from 10 to 15 pounds. Considering anything over that limit could not be deemed uh, collectible for outstanding debt matters. What group do you think was frowned upon by tavern keepers, or rather, or by tavern owners the most? I learned this um, some time back when having read a book about taverns in colonial America. Believe it or not, folks, it was sailors. Sailors were the ones that were often frowned upon by tavern keepers because they tended to have a bad reputation for not paying in full, that is, paying everything right up front. Sailors weren't lent credit in fear that should they not pay in full up front, their voyage to the next destination would be delayed, causing further problems for captain and other crewmen aboard. So if John Smith, who's a sailor, was given um, 10 pounds of credit, but yet he didn't pay uh, Mr. Jones, the tavern keeper, he, if he didn't pay Mr. Jones the full 10 pounds prior to his getting ready to uh, leave, then guess what? Mr. Then John Smith is going to be um, not only held um, responsible for failure to pay, but he will be um, refused uh, to enter upon his um, his uh, ship, which could easily delay his crew's uh, voyage. So sailors, I, I could see how sailors were not uh, a trustworthy source when it came to um, giving them credit. You could say the same perhaps about some other people, but it it was sailors in particular, because these guys are coming and going constantly. You know, they're, they're in one port town, and then they go to the next. So if they can't pay us here, then why should we trust them again? Not long after shots had been fired at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, April 19th of 1775, American privateersmen were making strides along the waters of the Atlantic Ocean in search of prizes big and small. Their successes would catch the eyes of Britain's nemesis, France. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground, and uh, when I'm on the air again next, I don't know when that will be, but hopefully it will be sometime right after Christmas, uh, hopefully before year's end. When I am on the air again next, we will be learning about the French Connection and how uh, the French um, became our um, allies in this war against England. Well, thank you for your time as always, and wherever you may live in the world, I wish all of you a Merry Christmas. Take care and stay safe. God bless.